Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, a more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. The past few years have only served to highlight what allowing Westminster to make choices for us is like. So let's make the choices we want for our families and our communities right here in Scotland. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP. Now let's find out who's joining me on Scotland's Choice today. Well, you've got Pete Wishart, MP for Perth and North Perthshire, your constituency neighbour. Though I think you've always got the more nicer side of the A9. That's what we always say in Perthshire anyway. Well, I can disagree with that a bit for you. Uh, Pete, you're, um, you've not always been a politician. No, I was, I think well, most people are aware, I was in Runrig for about 20 years before that. Big country. So, like, I'm um, making this transition into politics was a little bit of the more severe variety. And I think I could always say that with this job, I'll never, ever get an encore. Okay. Hi there, I, I'm Michael Sturrock. I'm uh, an independence campaigner and uh, with, with uh, the sort of specific uh, reference to the fact that I was a no voter in 2014. So I'm working on um, trying to convert those like me who voted against independence in 2014. And I'm doing that through uh, my website, notes.vote. And um, yeah, also working in the, in the political field in the SNP, like uh, my two colleagues on the call. Hi, I'm Kirsten Oswald and I am the MP for East Grenfordshire. Um, and it's great to be here with all of you on the podcast. Well, thanks for joining us to all of you for uh, coming on to Scotland's Choice. Uh, I have to start with this um, because we're recording in a week when we've had Boris Johnson appearing uh, once again in the Commons over Partygate. Um, can I start with you, Pete? What does this say about Westminster? Is, it, is this all down to one man? Well, it's been quite extraordinary, hasn't it? And I mean, I just think you take you back, Drew, as, as if I need to, <laughs> to two months ago when all this kicked off. And I recall a particular moment, I think it was about two o'clock um, on November the 3rd. The Tories were something like 12 points ahead of the polls. They seemed invincible and touchable. They were governing with confidence. There was a real sense that they had momentum and they were going ahead. Then all of a sudden they brought that motion. You remember about Owen Patterson. Mm -hmm. And then since Owen Patterson, there's been cash for access, cash for honours, second jobs, all manners of corruptions and sleaze. We've then moved on to Partygate, to Cape Gate, and of course we've now got the Subaru report. But this is all happening in real time for us as parliamentarians down here. But it's just extraordinary, the pace that this has been carried carried out and, and it really is at the stage now where every single day brings a new development and a, a new twist to the story. Um, of course, the, the, the tortuous progress of the Subaru report and the the, um, the part of it that we had yesterday, the updated as it was, I think, first of all described has left us in a, a real limbo where we've obviously got the issues, outstanding issues about what Sue Gray's had in her initial report, which are dreadful as they stand, but then we're not being able to touch on the real bits, the bits that the, the Met Police are investigating, those that actually might lead to some sort of criminal charges and convictions. So we're in this limbo area where we've got a Prime Minister who's been investigated by the police, who's probably going to be uh, questioned under caution. We've got another instalment of the Sue uh, Green inquiry to come. And meanwhile, you know, like we're dealing with a cost of living crisis, uh, mm-hmm. an issue in the border of Russia and Ukraine, and a Prime Minister 
that nobody believes anymore. And I think that Ian Blackford this week, and, and what my highlight of the week was when Ian stood up there and very bravely told them exactly what he was. He was a liar, someone who misled the House, and I know in the House of Commons, as, as a consequence of that, you, you're, you would be obliged to leave, and Ian did in yeah. the most dramatic and you know, like <laughs> lively way possible. And I think that's been the agenda this week, but who knows what we get tomorrow, it's uh-huh. just so fast-paced. And before I come to Michael, because you'll be watching this from afar, Kirsten, you've been in the chamber during all this as well. What are your reflections on it? You know, it's, I mean, it is an extraordinary time. And as, as Pete said, you know, it seems like day by day by day, there's more and more and more revelations, you know, whether it's, um, you know, people who are being moved to the Lords who've coincidentally donated very large sums to the Tory party, whether it's um, wallpaper or curtains, I can't remember which, that were being solicited at um, very high values, um, whether it's this party gate scandal. And, you know, there were more parties than even the ones we knew about (laughs) on the the bit of the Sue Gray report, which we were able to see. So although there wasn't a great deal of information there, because, of course, the Met are now looking into that, even that report contained more information. So, you know, you have to wonder what what next, you know, what, what other parties have taken place that we don't know about. And of course, while all that's going on, Boris Johnson has had a different excuse. He's had more excuses than he's had parties. And, and that's really saying something. You know, it's gone from there was nothing at all happened um, to something might have happened. And if it did, he would be furious to hear about such a thing. To He was um, actually... There, but it was a work event. To he was there, and it, it was a party. Uh, but he's very sorry because nobody told him that was against the rules, which mm. he himself made. And I think people are really upset. And you know, you, you can't blame anyone for being upset by that because when people at home were doing the right thing, and, mm. and you know, they maybe didn't go and see family members who were terribly ill or, or even dying. Mm-hmm. He he was having a, a, a party every night at, at 10 Downing Street. And, you know, people, I think, are feeling that really keenly. So I, I wonder what the, the coming days will bring. But I, I think what we know it will bring is Boris Johnson behaving in that really reprehensible manner that he behaved in yesterday. The way that he dealt with the questions about this in the comments was, was really shocking. Um, I, I think that that told us everything that, that we need to know about yeah. him and, and how he sees the world and how he sees his own place in it. He thinks he's better than everybody else. And Michael, you, you're not a, an elected politician. You're looking at this from the, the outside. What, what are your thoughts? How does this reflect on Westminster and, and, and on the way that the UK, the nations of the UK are governed by Westminster? Yeah, well, it's been it's interesting watching from afar, actually. And and one of the, yeah, as Kirsten says, we kind of reached the edge of um, you know reasonableness and integrity on, on Boris Johnson's side. And actually, just one of the sort of visual things that you can see from afar is, uh, you know, in, in Westminster when the leader and the leader of the opposition they sort of stack the decks behind them. Their biggest um, uh, biggest fans are you know behind them waving and shouting and screaming. The kind of number who have been doing that has been growing smaller and smaller and smaller each week um, in the past few weeks as 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 you look at the Tory benches from afar and actually there's quite a lot now who are just sitting there with their arms folded and not really saying much and not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So I think Ruth Davidson actually um, hit the nail on the head yesterday saying it's not about the integrity of the Prime Minister anymore. It's about the integrity of those who are propping him up, be it in Cabinet or in or in his party as well. So how long is it going to be that the Tories are going to be able to stomach this for? From, from, the, from the devolved nation's perspective, I think... 
Um, and you'll see the Scottish Parliament as well and the Welsh Parliament and Northern Ireland Assembly, they're all much more collegiate and um, non-adversarial places. And it just, the contrast just looks so stark at the moment. It's just, if you are in somewhere and you see a clip from maybe BBC News from Westminster and then you see a clip from, from the Scottish Parliament, it's just night and day. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I just uh, come in there of and, course you and can, yeah. see that the, the contrast between Westminster and Holyrood, for instance, has never been greater in my opinion, when you see uh, people in, in Hollywood going about their business, people of um, you know different political beliefs, perhaps, but going about their business and um, you know making sure that they have their say, but in a, a much more uh, respectable and respectful way. Even although you know sometimes we we look there and think you know goodness you know that was that was a bit much. There's a, a million miles between that was a bit much and this pantomime that we're seeing here, where we've, mm. we've got Boris Johnson speaking so disrespectfully and you know frankly lying through his teeth every time he appears at the, the dispatch box and Ian Blackford being escorted off the premises by a man with a sword. I mean, really, it's no wonder that we look at that and think we can we can really do so much better on our own. You know, there, there's there's not a starker demonstration, I think, of, of why we need to, to do our own thing and, and leave this all behind. Well, indeed, we're, we're seeing the unseemly side of Westminster, something that isn't new. It's, it's been around for years. Pete um, has obviously been chasing cash for owners with different governments for uh, many years in this uh, place. But but I want to go away from the, the unseemly side of politics and go back to you know the, the roots for all of you in terms of how you got into politics. But Pete, what, what initially got you into politics and what uh, drove you to become part of the independence movement? Well, Drew, that's a very good question and quite a long story and it actually goes back to your brother. I was in college with, back in Murray House College of Education back in the early 1980s, and I suppose the, the first real political gig I ever had was as student union president mm-hmm. of Murray House. Now that was in the early 1980s, where you know, like um, student activism in politics was mm-hmm. actually quite something. It was the early days of Thatcher and the, our plans to introduce um, our end student grants and the response that there was to that. I mean, um, I did community education though. It's always felt like community agitation, given. <laughs> The whole course, all the courses were run by Marxists. We encouraged <laughs> us to think along most of those lines. So that was really how I got sort of involved in politics and took an interest. And when I was student union president, we managed to spend a third of my presidency in occupation. So that was the, my gentle introduction to politics. And of course, I went away into music, but Grundig always had a very strong mm-hmm. political connection, whether that be supporting the Gaelic language, mm-hmm. land reform. I mean, we became almost a soundtrack to mm-hmm. the coming of the Scottish Parliament and we're very much involved in some of the campaigns around that and then you know like for me it was a natural progression to go into full-time politics and I was strongly mm-hmm. encouraged by Alec, Alec Salmon mm-hmm. to do that and mm-hmm. you know like an opportunity arose in Persia when John Swinney said he was going to be standing for the Scottish Parliament and I um, hastily grabbed that opportunity I was going to stand for the Scottish Parliament and sometimes I sort of wish, wish I had you know I mean mm-hmm. I was vetted and I was looking around for a constituency back in 1999. I always sort of wondered what would have happened if I'd done that, you know, and other than being down here for 21 years, it's going to be this year, you know, so, um, and I don't think I get the key to the door. For this <laughs> I don't but, think um, they'll give you that, no. Like, it's, it's the feather of the hoose. I'll, I'll look after all the youngins here, you know, so <laughs> I always see that as my sort of Indeed. paternal, grandfatherly role. And Kirsten, what was your journey? I have to say, I'd never thought of Pete as the, the grandfather of the group before. I'll, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll not make any comment on that, but um, I, I had a, a probably a very different journey to Pete. I had absolutely no intention whatsoever 
of becoming involved in politics. Um, that was a deliberate choice. Um, I, I was very interested and, and always have been very interested in politics. I come from a, a very political family, but I was not going to be personally politically active, but I couldn't help myself. 2014 was too good an opportunity to mm -hmm. miss, and I just kept thinking that being stuck on the sidelines was really the wrong place to be. So from not doing very much um, activism, um, you know, I... I helped my, my mum in a few elections. My mum was an SNP councillor, but, you know, I did that very much not from a partisan um, perspective, but really helping my mum. I ended up uh, joining the SNP in June 2014 um, because I was knocking on doors um, and knocked on quite a lot of doors and got from being not involved at all to being extremely involved very, very quickly um, and found myself um, elected um, less than a year after uh, joining so it was a bit of a roller coaster a bit of a, um, a very very speedy journey into politics but I, I don't regret that change at all it mm -hmm. was a complete change from uh, being a, a an HR professional I was an HR director in my former life so you know there are some um, some similarities but I think when there's the, the opportunity to change things I think that that's such a driving force for, for lots mm -hmm. of people and one of the things that I, I do think about a lot is that there are so many people who came forward in 2014 or in and around 2014 who could see that potential for change and, and recognise that this isn't for some group of people in an ivory tower somewhere. All of us have got the ability to change well, things. All well, of us well, are able to get involved. It's not just for indeed. those and such as those. We're all able to roll up our sleeves and, and you know that I think is a really powerful thing. Well, while we're talking about 2014, we can perhaps turn to Michael and talk about uh, his journey, because you were in a very different place in 2014, weren't you? Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, I actually, do you know what, I like to say I was in a similar place, but the circumstances have changed. Mm -hmm. But just, well, to, to sort of talk about briefly, yeah, I, I, um, I was sort of very much on the not party political side of things before as well. And it was actually in my old job, uh, where I work with businesses and in, in the sort of policy side of things, I had to go around all the party conferences of the different parties and, and um, uh, talk to the politicians there and, and about my specific policy area, which is data and tech. But I went to, I remember going to the um, Labour Party conference first and walking in the first day and there was a guy there with a sign that said um, liberation through Brexit and a guy about 20 feet away saying Brexit is the worst thing in the world. I thought, these guys are in the same party. What on earth is that about? And then going to the Tory party conference was a bit like going to Mars. And then I came to um, the SNP conference in Glasgow and saw a kind of cohesive um uh, forward-looking party and thought, you know what, actually, if I'm going to stick my stake in the ground at some point, I better do this. And so that was actually, that was, as you say, that was kind of after the, the Brexit vote. But um, yeah, before that, certainly I was um, fiercely protective of my, my EU um, citizenship. I was um, living and working in, in France in the year of the um, uh, the Brexit vote. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, this was the key argument for me was um, the way to keep your EU membership was as Better Together told us to uh, remain in the UK. And uh, as I said before in this, this podcast, things didn't turn out quite the way as I expected. Um, so that's that's kind of my political, one political movement into party politics and two um, from no to yes as well. And so now um, I have been, I work very closely with Angus Robson and his and his team. I was the organiser in Edinburgh Central and uh, helped run his campaign here. So um, things are going well. Good. I think I'm moving in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> well, in 2014, the big three issues from the campaign that, that uh, you know, people were, with the exception of the EU one, which I think, as Michael has just uh, 
uh, pointed out, is now uh, gone because that promise of uh, staying in the EU if you voted no is, has been betrayed already. Uh, but the other three issues of the campaign were pensions, borders and currency. And how have these arguments changed since 2014, Kirsten? You know, I think it's quite interesting, actually, that you sort of are, you know, picking out these obviously um, sort of um, headline issues, if you like. And, you know, if you even just scratching the surface and, you know, talking about pensions, you know, but I think are finally beginning to hear a little bit more reflected about the relative state of the, the UK pension as compared to, to other pensions and um, nations not too far away. And I think as people are, are hearing that, they're, they're surprised because, you know, of course, we were we were told in 2014 that, you know, things would, would be terrible in an independent Scotland for pensioners. But here we are with, you know, pension promises broken, triple lock, mm. um, broken, the, the WASPY women no nearer to any kind of um, sensible resolution. And you know, it obviously wasn't true, was it? What, what was said, you know, the this stay with us, stay in the UK, um, you know, we'll look after you pensioners is, is being proven to be just as much a, a load of mince, frankly, as, as lots of the, the other um, things that we were told were the case. So, you know, I, I think that all of these promises, um, which some of us did take with a very large pinch of salt because perhaps we could see the writing on the wall, I think that the reality of them is is clearer, you know, day and daily. And um, I, I, I think that people will be taking a, a, a different approach and a different look at that when we come back and ask the question again, because yeah. they'll be able you, to see for themselves that what they were told yeah. was simply not factually and, accurate. And you can see these issues bubbling up again with the people who would oppose independence, don't you, Pete? Where they're, you know, they're saying, "Oh, you wouldn't get your pension. Yeah. Uh, the, the, you know, you, you wouldn't get that. You, uh, you know, the, the, you, there'd be real problems of borders. Well, there's big problems of borders in the EU now, anyway. And uh, and you, know, you couldn't use the pound. You can't use this currency. You can't do this, that, and the next. What are your reflections on these arguments now? Well, these were the arguments. You're absolutely right. And I think we got bogged down excessively with currency. We seem to not be able to move on from that at all. We, and we had real difficulty in dealing with some of these things. We couldn't overcome exactly what they were trying to say and suggest about what an independent Scotland would be like. And of course, pensions was a really easy hit for them. You know, I mean, their, their major objective was to get that vote from the older generations mm -hmm. who perhaps didn't have access to the same type of information and input that other generations had. So the, the focus on our borders wasn't such a big issue in 2014 if we look back, mm -hmm. but I think it'll be huge next time around, mm -hmm. absolutely huge, mm -hmm. because you know the whole, the whole conversation and debate has been redefined with us leaving the European Union. So that's going to feature heavily and, you know, like we've got something very good to say mm -hmm. about this, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. we'll have access to the, if we become an independent nation and realise our ambition to rejoin the EU, we'll have access to the biggest trading market in the world. It, 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 in a nutshell, and correct me if I'm wrong, people are legally entitled to the pensions they've paid into Absolutely. over the years. They're going to get these, all these things are dragged up that you wouldn't get them, that it'd be, yeah. you know, somehow you wouldn't be entitled to it if Scotland get independent. Let's just put that one to bed. Be legally entitled to it. The, the other um, uh, issue about borders, you mentioned borders just now, and, you know, people go, what would you do in terms of trade? I've repeated this many times, but I'm going to say it again. The vast majority of Scotland's manufactured goods are exported outside of the, the UK uh, to the EU and the rest of the world. And of course, the, the UK government have been sabotaging yeah, yeah. that like mad over I mean, the, the past wee while. We should they? reframe this and put it back to them and say, we may look favourably in mm -hmm. trading with 
to what's left of the United Kingdom because they're not getting a good deal with anybody else. But like, <laughs> we, we might just allow them yeah. to, to trade with us in favourable terms, given that they are our close neighbours. But I think that the referendum next time around will be immensely different from the one we had in 2014. Mm-hmm. The, the range of um, issues will be significantly different. And, you know, I mean, um, I, I think that there'll be a real sense that it'll be more about some of the bigger mm-hmm. philosophical issues about what we're doing, the democratic issues, than getting bogged down mm-hmm. in particular. Indeed. Yeah, and just that final one there, the, the currency point. Out, out of all the countries that have left the UK, uh, I think there's something over 50 since the second end of the Second World War. How many of them have been stopped from becoming independent because of currency issues? Well, the, the, the currency <laughs> was always a nonsense. And, yeah. but that, and again, this is my exasperation when we managed to get bogged down it so much. Every independent nation in the world has a currency, a currency that works yeah. for them, and which, as far as I could observe, when any travelling that we do, all of them seem mm-hmm. to get by perfectly well without you know, having to use like the currency that the UK decide we can carry. And the UK itself, and again I've said this in the previous podcast, but I think it's worthy of repeating, the UK itself actually pegged sterling to the dollar yes. in 1940. It's been to the IMF for a bailout loan, it's done all these things that hasn't stopped the UK saying uh, that it can survive as a state, and that would be the case for Scotland going forward Absolutely. as well. So, so, so let's move on to the meat of our main uh, topic today, which is Devo Max. Now, uh, I'm going to stay with you, Pete, just for a minute. Back in 2012, uh, you said that the SNP had no built-in hostility to a Devo Max option on the ballot paper. What has changed since then? And did the Smith Commission give us any clue as to the real Westminster view on this? Well, there's been a great deal of revisionism going on since 2012, <laughs> and this was first discussed and put forward. I mean, I think um, when I was in the House of Commons in 2012, I had several very interesting discussions with Conservative members of Parliament and those that were starting to shape up what the anti-referendum case would be and the type of things that would be included. They were so confident in winning that they were prepared to yeah. concede anything at that point. I mean, like David Cameron, to him, it was just getting this out of the way. That would be that would be it settled, and you know that would be that would be the the, the box takes Scotland out of the way once and for all. And they were so confident they allowed us to frame the question, set the mm-hmm. franchise, give the time in the referendum. And, you know, the only thing that they did not want on was a Devo Max question because that was the one fear that he was so confident of beating independence, but would yeah. the Scots maybe just opt for this if it was mm-hmm. on the ballot paper? So that's why we argued for it mm-hmm. at that point. And, you know, like, um, it, was a, it was a sort of Hublink's first high-stakes sort of poker game and we're looking around for this, but it was the one thing that they did not want on mm-hmm. the ballot paper. So it was the one thing that we tried to pursue so we'd mm-hmm. get the rest and get everything else. Mm-hmm. And we, we did. And, you know, like the arrangements in the Edinburgh Agreement, like it's, it's so much tilted in our favour that it's hard to believe that we managed to secure it. Now, it's going to be a lot more harder to get that next time mm-hmm. because of experience and obviously mm-hmm. the next referendum, you know, that's going to be a lot tighter for uh, the forces of unionism. But back then in 2012, it was a good tactic mm-hmm. to put forward the idea that Devo Max would be have really wanted, had we known that they would be prepared to concede it? I don't know, I mean, that's above my pay grade at that point, but they were really nervous about that well, being included. Well, let's talk about the reality of what would happen, um, you know, in terms of taking forward the conversation on Devo Max. In, in 2015, uh, Kirsten, the SNP presented the option of full fiscal autonomy. We, we were uh, involved in putting forward that uh, option. That was rejected by the UK government, yet Devo Max is trotted out again uh, by Westminster parties to try and uh, prevent Scotland from uh, choosing independence. 
they, they said it, it, it wouldn't work. Uh, they said it, it, now they say it will work. Um, how could they present Devo Max as, a, as only being good at certain times when it suits their argument? I mean, I think that's it. That's a really fair point. And, you know, even if you take a wee bit of a step back from that, what are they actually talking about it anyway? <laughs> yeah. You know, what you mean by Devo Max might be different to what Pete means, different to what Michael means, different to what I mean. You know, it's, it's a completely non-specific phrase, um, which, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought would be the ideal thing to, to be putting on any kind of ballot paper. People would surely want to know what they're they're voting for. And, and anyway, you know, frankly, life has moved on. Everything has moved on. Everything's different, whether we think about that through the, the prism of, of Brexit and the fact that we were marched over that Brexit cliff age, absolutely regardless of the way that Scotland voted. Every local authority area voted to remain in the EU and we were shoved right over that Brexit cliff age, no matter that that was clearly against the, the views of the, the Scottish population. You know, and, and look at all this chaos now at, at Westminster. And then I guess you have to also think about whether we would want to rely upon um, anybody um, from the, the unionists' um, perspective, saying that Debo Max could be on the ballot paper and it would mean some specified range of things. Because, frankly, I wouldn't believe that. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can look back at the vow, you can look at the, you know, the, the toings and froings nowadays, and, you know, that that's just not good enough. You know, people in Scotland have voted, um, repeatedly voted for an independence referendum. People have got the right to that referendum. That is a, a proper democratic, um, you know, route for them to go down. And, you know, I, I think that increasingly it's clear that there's two choices, two very stark and very different choices. There's independence, or there's the, 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 the good ship UK, and I certainly don't want yeah. to go down with yeah, I that. Think, I think, Kirsten, it's really interesting, because I think you've underlined the fatal flaw in Devo Max, and it's something that's uh, I want to talk about in a minute or two, which is the, the way, if Westminster still has control uh, over uh, certain things, then it can just override uh, whatever's happening to Scotland. You mentioned being taken out of the EU. Under most people's definitions of Devo Max, that would have been everything apart from foreign affairs, which you know, coming out of the EU would have been under. Mm -hmm. So it would have been a, a critical error. Mike, Michael, I, I want to bring you in here. You've been doing some research into Devo Max and the likely impacts uh, when compared to independence. What, what can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, as you both said, it's, it's really about first and foremost defining what Devo Max is. And yes, this, this idea of full fiscal autonomy is one thing. But, um, and as you say, in, in light of leaving the EU and, and other internal market acts and structural constitutional things that have come into, come into the phrase since the last vote, it's really full fiscal autonomy is uh, not really much at all. I mean, even then you need to uh, devolve things like VAT, corporation tax. Um, and then if you look at the social security side, um, there are powers that we would um, want to have, wish to have, or some might wish to have, such as the ability to fund our own um, social security, what would allow us to reverse the cuts in universal credit, for example. Um, and as I say, the internal market legislation, this is something that sort of has fundamentally altered the um, structure of the way the UK sits at the moment. Because in spite, let's say you just had the you know, mystery box, Devo Max, everything you could possibly ever want. Underneath all of this is a new um, bill, piece of legislation, the Internal Market Act, and that's in that's, uh, yesterday, or was it the day before? Uh, yesterday, um, the Brexit Freezing Bill so it was a bit of a, an addition to that. But basically what that means is, despite giving, we could give you everything tomorrow, Westminster could say to Scotland, mm -hmm. but ultimately there is the ability to change all that. 
And that's what the UK government is seeking to do at the moment with the uh, internal market bill. It allows them all the powers that have been taken back or all the legislation that's been taken back from the UK and is now held with Westminster, even if it is a, um, a, a devolved matter, the UK government is attempting to be able to legislate in that area, essentially overriding um, the devolution settlement as, as it is at the moment. So you've got that issue with, yes, you could be given everything that you possibly wanted if we could define Devomax tomorrow, but the structure is so... Um, the, the game is set, as it were, already, that this could be just withdrawn at any any stage. And then there's there's another component to this, which is about the rest of the UK. You know, we're, we're talking about Devo Max as if it's just a Scotland thing, because if we devolve powers to Scotland, we need to be thinking about what we give to Wales, what we give to Northern Ireland. But actually, we also need to look at England as an entity as well and the regions that are there. So um, I, I've talked to so many people about, um, uh, particularly the Tories and Labour, who say, but, you know, there's so much we can do to improve the UK the democratic structures um, giving more uh, regional mayors having um, regional assemblies across um, the north of England and, and that's all very well that's great but you know all these things require huge amounts of thoughts proposals and none of it has been done Mm-hmm. So if even if you say, yes, tomorrow we are going to reform the House of Lords, make it into some kind of regional pr- assembly, perhaps, great. Where is the white paper that says that? Indeed. I don't believe, yeah. and as Kirsten says, I don't believe that's going to happen. And, and it's not wishful thinking. It's not enough to make this, um, to make this happen, this massive new um, restructuring and rebuilding of the UK. And, and so, that, again, underlines how uh, mythical this thing is, because the fact mm-hmm. that that work hasn't been done, it's never been done, despite all of the time that's been spent talking about it, um, you know, it, it's just not there. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that, um, well, there's Gordon Brown's think tank, is it, um, on, not onwards for Scotland, our Scottish future or something said he was going to, going to look at these types of things. And at the moment, we, we know uh, one of the big arguments that trotted out is, oh, Scotland has given more money um, than it, than it, uh, than it, from London than it takes in. And as debatable as, as all of that is, there's, there's some truth to saying that London is the biggest economic powerhouse in the UK, but that is the same for London versus any other region of the UK. It is a fundamentally imbalanced structure that we are sitting within. So, you know, we, we need to, we definitely need to re- rebalance in terms of um, regional, even if we're remaining in the UK, regional um, development and um, balancing back out. But there's just no thought on, and, on and how the to other, do that. The, the, the other interesting thing about that argument about whether or not Scotland has paid more out of the UK, or what, it, it completely ignores the fact that for decades Scotland was paying more than it was uh, due into <laughs> the UK coffers. Um, and these are using the same JERS figures, the General Expenditure Revenue Scotland figures that, uh, that are thrown back at uh, Scotland all the time. So there's an element of swings and roundabouts, but the swings are very, very heavily, or, or rather the, uh, the swing has swung much further it's, it's towards also not Scotland. A stat- it's not supposed to be a static figure. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a movement. You know, yes. there's, there's money going either way all the time. Yeah. And I think I'm right in saying if, um, yeah, if you take this historically, then Scotland has put in way more. But everyone says, oh, you know, on one day Scotland has taken more out or one, well, one tax intake. This has happened. And therefore, it yeah. is, this is the rule of thumb for all eternity. Michael, just briefly, because I want to bring Kirsten back in in a wee second, um, but uh, you were a no-voter in 2014. You said the main issue was around EU membership and so forth. But did the uh, the vow, the uh, Devo Max promises that were made uh, back in 2014 have an influence on you and the way you voted at that time? Totally. 
absolutely did. Um, particularly, you all remember Gordon Brown's barnstorming speech about, um, well, as, uh, yeah, as we've been saying, the kind of reset of the of the relationship. And I think that probably sealed it for me, actually, because, um, you know, as, as a relatively young person, arguably, I was one of those should have been independent supporting people. And, you know, it was it was that head heart split <laughs> at the same time. So, you know, to have the, the dangling mystery box, Devo Max kind of there as a possibility certainly helped me, uh, helped push me towards uh, the no side. And even if you're charitable, Gordon Brown's had eight or nine years to work on this. <laughs> he still hasn't yeah. come up with the model yet. Uh, Kirsten, the more and more of the Westminster parties uh, bringing back the old carrot of Devo Max suggest to you that they're conceding that a referendum on Scotland's future will indeed take place. Well, I mean, it, it will definitely take place. And, you know, yes, I, I think that there's a, a degree of um, you know, almost desperation and, you know, in, in some ways in, in terms of, you know, people throwing things at the situation to, to see what might stick because they, they can see the direction of travel and that's not something that they favour. Now, it's perfectly respectable for people not to favour Scottish independence. I will feel very much um, free to disagree with their opinion, but it's perfectly respectable for them to, to have that opinion. But what's not respectable is for elected Westminster politicians to stand in the way of the Scottish people who have repeatedly voted for a, a, a you know a particular course of action. So let's look at the the outcome of the recent Holyrood election. It's very clear the mandate that the Scottish government has that that, that is an independence um, mandate for a, a referendum. Mm -hmm. That there's no good in anybody thinking that they can stand in the way of that. And there's absolutely no good in them thinking that they should stand in the way of that. So, you know, I think that there's a, a pretty fundamental issue in all mm -hmm. of that. You know, who, who who is in charge of what the Scottish people get to decide? Well, that's the Scottish, Scottish people. people yeah, so indeed. that isn't um, Boris Johnson or Gordon Brown, for that matter, or, or anyone else from, from any other political party, from any political party at all, actually. People have had their say. This is what they have chosen should happen next. And they will therefore have a referendum and they'll be able to make their choice at that point. And Pete, the, the, these things are also um, being suggested at a time when Miss Westminster is actively looking yeah. to cut yeah. uh, the number of MPs elected from Scotland. Does that make any sense it at all? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. But it sort of fits into a pattern just now that we've seen over the course of the past two, three years. And this is this confused approach to Scotland. I mean, I think muscular unionism was all the rage up to probably about a year ago until they realised just how damaging this was when they saw what happened in the Scottish election and their plummeting ratings in the opinion polls and you know this is when they set up the Single Market Act when they were prepared to look at the Seoul Convention not, not, not brand that worth the vellum it was written on mm -hmm. so yeah. like what we've got is a whole series of things that they had where they actually tried to impose their will upon Scotland and believing that somehow that that would rally the unionist support mm -hmm. and when it did it rallied a smaller smaller percentage in proportion of that and I think they've realised that this just isn't working for them now but um, what, the, what the unionists do I know it's not our position to sit and suggest to them what they need to do in order to try and sort of have any sort of impression in Scotland but they're going to have to they're going to have to decide their approach. I mean, just to say no to a referendum constantly and consistently is not going to hold up for them. No. At some point they're going to have to get get around the table and discuss this sensibly. Trying to undermine our institutions and our democracy has been an abject failure for them, which they've now started to realise themselves. So they're in this limbo situation just now, and as you say, they're mm -hmm. members of Parliament from Scotland, and they're, they're, they're 
what, what they should be doing is trying to enlist and ensure that we're backed up and supported. But they're not doing that, they're, they're cutting our numbers. So there's a, a real confusion just mm -hmm. now in terms of the unionist case. And, and I don't really think they know exactly what they're trying to do and what they want to achieve. And, and what do we uh, feel about the fact that, you know, during all this talk about, you know, what they might do with Devomax, which we know is not going to fly, uh, Michael was referring to the Internal Markets Act, which is a subject close to my heart uh, mm -hmm. earlier on. We, we've now got this so-called bonfire of EU red tape, and, and the Scottish Government found out about that. I think in a, in a yeah. brief phone call, not with any discussion, but just the, being told what was going to happen about 24 hours before they released it uh, to the, the press. What does that say about respect for Scotland? Well, I, I, know, I, mean, it was, I think it was Angus Roberts that was on that call, and I think he was expecting something around the, the nature of, you know, let's have a conversation mm -hmm. about what we're intending to bring forward. It was presented to him as this is what is going to happen. There's going to be mm -hmm. a bill which will allow, like, um, the withering away of any EU law and, the, and the acquisition of powers to deal with these sort of things. But to a certain degree, the UK has to do this. You know, like it, it has to start to act like the EU. And a lot of the things around the Internal Market Act was the UK government assuming the responsibility, the power and the clout of the EU, regardless of what Scotland and the rest of the nations of um, the UK felt about that. So this is just a, a natural progression of all this. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it tells us volumes about the lack of respect there is to Scottish ministers. Important to underline that it's not just the SNP, Scottish government, the First Minister, uh, you know, pointing this out, but the unionist Labour First Minister of Wales <laughs> as well pointing these things out as well. I, I want to ask all of you this, but starting with you, Michael, the, the UK has been diminishing itself on the world stage, not just with Brexit, as you mentioned earlier, but for example, the casual relationship it has with uh, supporting international law. What could an internationally focused, independent Scotland do to build on the Scottish Government's work on soft power? Mm. Yeah, there's a, there's a sort of an interesting assumption that the, the best thing or the most important thing to be in the international sphere is this, you know, big, powerful nation like the US or um, China or Russia to have these just basically the, the power to flip a switch and create these huge um, you know, world events that happen from time to time. But, you know, ultimately, day to day international politics, while it might not hit the headlines, is much more important in shaping the way um, the world goes and regions develop and grow. Um, and, and Scotland has just an enormous power of doing that. One, there's the, the um, arguably the most important part on the day to day basis is, is the cultural aspects. Um, you know, the Scotland's um, links with the uh, um, rest of the world and in particular the US. Um, Ireland's a great example of this. You know, people all around the world um, celebrate St. Patrick's Day. It's a huge um, celebration of Irish culture. But, you know, it's it's a kind of at a basic level, you know, for some people it's twee, but at a basic level, if it's, it's is creating good relationships and recognition of, of people and what um, uh, and, and representation of what we're we're trying to do in the world. So, um, as Nicola Sturgeon was at the Arctic Council a few few months ago, mm -hmm. um, and at, where she says you know, we are we are the technically the most northernmost nation not in the Arctic Circle. Um, so, um, as funny as that is, that is actually a key relationship yeah. because how the Arctic relates to the rest of the world is going to be crucial, especially in times of climate change. Um, you know, it, it is the um, final or first frontier in terms of um, damage that could happen from from the ice caps melting. So, how um, does Scotland play a kind of negotiating um, role, um, balancing those relationships, relaying it to the rest of the um, the region in the EU as well is is really important. Um, and and just generally, I think there's a 
in the EU in particular, there is a move towards, um, for example, greater's, uh, greater workers' rights, workers' protections. Mm. Um, and I think we in Scotland have a fundamentally different idea to what that is than the rest of the UK. And there's a lot of, of debate to be have, uh, had there. And I think um, the world is moving in the sort of EU's direction. And I think Scotland has a lot to offer that, not just in those kind of uh, those kind of um, regulations, but in, in climate change regulations and in um, uh, kind of the ethic, ethical um, trading, ethical markets, mm-hmm. um, respect of privacy, Edinburgh, for example, has the has one of the biggest data and tech centres in the world, and has some of the most world-leading thoughts on um, data protection, how ethics and AI um, interplay with our human rights going forward. And this is this is ground zero mm-hmm. for shaping that conversation, um, among others. So it's a really exciting place to be, and there's so much that actually we can do um, as an independent nation to shape regional and global narratives in in these areas. Okay, Kirsten. Do you know, I think that there's a few different areas that we, we could and, and should be focusing on. And, you know, that there's work that, that's going on in, um, in in these areas already. Michael spoke about the um, the importance of the, the North. And I think that that is, you know, something that we probably don't think about enough in the, um, you know, in the, the, sort of the, the general narrative that there is about Scotland and our future and, you know, how we, we need to go forward. Because we're so used to, to looking at the, the world, looking at the map from a particular angle, if you like, that sometimes we, we maybe lose sight of the, the strategic importance of where Scotland is located um, in terms of the, the, the geography of, of the thing. So, you know, the, the importance of being a, a good and responsible global citizen in terms of that strategic position that we hold, I think is something that, that absolutely is important. And these relationships that, that Nicola Sturgeon is is building up by, you know, her, her work that um, we, you know, we've already heard about is really important. And, you know, you could extend that thought, I think, to, you know, how, how else might we conduct ourselves? You know, we would need some kind of, of armed forces in an independent Scotland and what kind of relationship would we have externally facing out to the world? And I would suggest it would be a very different one to the, the one which the, the UK has. So, you know, that very uh, muscular, as Michael described, the attitude and, and that um, feeling that you want to, or, you, you know, that you think the UK is sort of harking back, if you like, to uh, days of yore. I think that it would be a very different approach that Scotland could take. And there is a, a huge amount of potential in terms of, um, you know, positive assistance in terms of disaster mm-hmm. recovery, in terms of, of peacekeeping and so on. And I think that that um, sort of built-in assumption that we want to be a good global citizen is really important. Important. And I guess the other um, thing for me that we really um, can and, and should offer is running Scotland and making sure that Scotland is run in the, the fairest and, and most equal way possible. Because one of the other things that I think we should aspire to do is to be a, a country where we are clearly absolutely supportive of the human rights of our citizens yeah. and making every effort to build that in from the beginning. And I think that that as um, somewhere for, for other countries to see that efforts are being made in that regard would be really powerful. And Pete, you personally know about uh, global outreach, having uh, toured <laughs> so many countries with uh, the various bands that you've been in uh, over the year. It, just going back to that question about you know the, the soft power, uh, the, the, the work that's already been done by the Scottish Government, the contrast with the way the UK government's handling itself at the moment, 
are the opportunities for Scotland the, there? The opportunities are massive and we should be making more of it just now because like, the UK is now trying to present itself as global Britain as a result of what's happened with leaving the European Union. It's little Britain, really, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Or broken Britain <laughs> or diminished Britain. <laughs> and the thing is, it's yeah. exacerbated by the behaviour of the Prime Minister, mm-hmm. who is, is now just a laughing stock in the international stage. If you speak to any sort of um, politician from any part of Europe just now in the European Union, they, they cannot believe just how badly led Britain is and just how mm-hmm. its world role has significantly fallen away. I mean, the regard towards the United Kingdom from international stakeholders is probably its lowest than mm-hmm. I can ever remember in my time in the House of Commons. So what we should be doing in Scotland is comparing and contrasting with mm-hmm. this. And you're absolutely right. The soft, soft power thing is essential to the story about ourselves, mm-hmm. particularly the narrative as we're heading towards an independence referendum and the type of country that we want to be. We have got amazing natural resources. We've got two universities in the top 100. We're a culturally secure nation mm-hmm. at peace with itself, who has a sense of its history, knows what is present and current politics and sense of its place in the world. And the thing is that we've got this untapped resource with the diaspora mm-hmm. right around the world. People who relate to Scotland in a very, very positive and meaningful way. I remember being at Central Station in one of the first ever Tartan Weeks we set up there. And people were queuing up just to tell us their Scottish story. You know, like this was something that they found was incredibly important to them that they were mm-hmm. able to see a linkage back through to like historical sort of um, connections with their nation. And these are the sort of things that we should be, build- we, we should be building on. We, we don't tell that ourselves mm-hmm. this enough. And I think as we go through this particular period of turbulence of the UK becoming a laughing joke on the world stage, it's for us you know, to tell the good, positive stories just about Scotland, our place in the world, the type of people we are, and what we've got to contribute in the future. And on that note, I'll thank you, uh, Pete Wisher, Kirsten Oswald and Michael Sturrock for joining us on Scotland's Choice. Thanks for listening to Scotland's Choice. You can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot and you can watch the full-length videos on YouTube. If you can share this podcast and our videos, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice. (laughs) 